Many normal people might have, say, six to ten major depressive episodes in their lives. I have bipolar depression, runs in my family. I've had 50 plus at this point, and I've learned a lot. I've had a lot of at bats, many rounds in the ring with darkness, taking good notes. So I thought, rather than get up and give any type of recipe for success or highlight reel, I would share my recipe for avoiding self-destruction and certainly self-paralysis. And the tool I found, which has proven to be the most reliable safety net for emotional freefall, is actually the same tool that has helped me to make my best business decisions. But it's, that is secondary, and it is. That's Tim Ferriss, and this is. The Depression Detox Show. Hello, and welcome back to the Depression Detox Show. Where we share ideas and stories to change your relationship with depression. I'm your host Malik Josephs, and we are closing out the week with entrepreneur Tim Ferriss, who is the author of five number one New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, and host of his super successful podcast with over 500 million episodes downloaded. And I really like this clip today. Because Tim has adopted an ancient strategy that is completely opposite of the mainstream when it comes to goal setting, so let's jump right in with Tim Ferriss. Enjoy. So this happy pick of me was taken in 1999. I was a senior in college, and it was right after dance practice. I was really, really happy, and I remember exactly where I was. About a week and a half later, I was sitting in the back of my used minivan. In a campus parking lot, when I decided that I was going to commit suicide, and I went from deciding to a full-blown planning very quickly, and I came this close to the edge of the precipice. It's the closest I've ever come, and the only reason I took my finger off the trigger was thanks to a few lucky coincidences. And after the fact, that's what scared me the most: the element of chance. So I became very methodical about testing different ways that I could manage my ups and downs, which has proven to be a good investment. <laughs> Many normal people might have, say, six to ten major depressive episodes in their lives. I have bipolar depression, runs in my family. I've had 50 plus at this point, and I've learned a lot. I've had a lot of at bats, many rounds in the ring with darkness, taking good notes. So I thought, rather than get up and give any type of recipe for success or highlight reel, I would share my recipe for avoiding self-destruction and certainly self-paralysis. And the tool I found, which has proven to be the most reliable safety net for emotional freefall, is actually the same tool that has helped me to make my best business decisions. But it's, that is secondary, and it is stoicism. That sounds boring. You、might think of Spock, or might conjure an image like this: <laughs> a cow standing in the rain. It's not sad. It's not particularly happy. It's just an impassive creature taking whatever life sends its way. You might not think of the ultimate competitor, say Bill Belichick, 
head coach of the New England Patriots. He has the all-time NFL record for Super Bowl titles. And stoicism has spread like wildfire in the top of the NFL ranks as a means of mental toughness training in the last few years. You might not think of the founding fathers: Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, George Washington, to name but three students of stoicism. George Washington actually had a play about a stoic. This was Cato, a tragedy performed for his troops at Valley Forge to keep them motivated. So why would people of action focus so much on an ancient philosophy? This seems very academic, and I would encourage you to think about stoicism a little bit differently as an operating system for thriving in high-stress environments, for making better decisions. And it all started here, kind of, on a porch. So around 300 BC, in Athens, someone named Zeno of Citium taught many lectures walking around a painted porch, a stoa. That later became Stoicism, and in the Greco-Roman worlds, people used Stoicism as a comprehensive system for doing many, many things. But for our purposes, chief among them was training yourself to separate what you can control from what you cannot control, and then doing exercises to focus exclusively on the former. This decreases emotional reactivity, which can be a superpower. Conversely. Let's say you're a quarterback. You miss a pass. You get furious with yourself. That could cost you a game. If you're a CEO and you fly off the handle at a very valued employee because of a minor infraction, that could cost you the employee. If you're a college student who, say, is in a downward spiral and you feel helpless and hopeless, unabated, that could cost you your life. So the stakes are very, very high. And there are many tools in the toolkit. To get you there, I'm going to focus on one that completely changed my life in 2004, and it found me then because of two things: a very close friend, young guy my age, died of pancreatic cancer unexpectedly, and then my girlfriend, who I thought I was going to marry, walked out. She'd had enough, and、uh, she didn't give me a Dear John letter, but she did give me this: a Dear John plaque. I'm not making this up. I've kept it. Business hours are over at five o'clock. She gave this to me to put on my desk for personal health because at the time, I was working on my first real business.、I、had no idea what I was doing. I was working 14-plus-hour days, seven days a week. I was using stimulants to get going. I was using depressants to wind down and go to sleep. It was a disaster.、I、felt completely trapped, and I bought a book on simplicity to try to find answers. And I did find a quote that made made a big difference in my life. Which was, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality, by Seneca the Younger, who was a famous Stoic writer. That took me to his letters, which took me to the exercise, premeditatio malorum, which means the premeditation of evils. And in simple terms, this is visualizing the worst-case scenarios in detail that you fear, preventing you from taking action, so that you can take action to overcome that paralysis. My problem was. Monkey mind, super loud, very incessant. Just thinking my way through problems doesn't work. I needed to capture my thoughts on paper, so I created a written exercise that I called fear setting, like goal setting for myself. And it consists of three pages. Super simple. The first page is right here. What if I dot 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 question mark? This is whatever you fear, whatever is causing you anxiety, whatever you're putting off. Could be asking someone out, ending a relationship. Asking for a promotion, 
quitting a job, starting a company, could be anything. For me, it was taking my first vacation in four years and stepping away from my business for a month to go to London, where I could stay in a friend's room for free, to either remove myself as a bottleneck in the business or shut it down. In the first column, define, you're writing down all of the worst things you can imagine happening if you take that step. And you want 10 to 20. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll give you two examples. So one was, I'll go to London, it'll be rainy, I'll get depressed, the whole thing will be a huge waste of time. Number two, I'll miss a letter from the IRS, and I'll get audited or raided or shut down or some such. And then you go to the prevent column. In that column, you write down the answer to, what could I do to prevent each of these bullets from happening, or at the very least, decrease the likelihood, even a little bit. So for getting depressed in London, I could take a portable blue light with me, use it for 15 minutes in the morning. I knew that helped to stave off depressive episodes. For the IRS bit, I could change the mailing address on file with the IRS so the paperwork would go to my accountant instead of to my UPS address. Easy peasy. Then we go to repair. So if the worst-case scenario has happened, what could you do to repair the damage even a little bit? Or who could you ask for help? So in the first case, London, well, I could fork over some money, fly to Spain, get some sun, undo the damage if I got into a funk. In the case of missing a letter from the IRS, I could call a friend who is a lawyer or ask, say, a professor of law what they would recommend, who I should talk to, how had people handled this in the past. So one question to keep in mind as you're doing this first page is, has anyone else in the history of time less intelligent or less driven figured this out? Chances are the answer is yes. The second page is simple. What might be the benefits of an attempt or a partial success? So you can see we're playing up the fears and really taking a conservative look at the upside. So if you attempted whatever you're considering, might you build confidence, develop skills, emotionally, financially, otherwise? What might be the benefits of, say, a base hit? Spend 10 to 15 minutes on this. Page three. This might be the most important, so don't skip it. The cost of inaction. Humans are very good at considering what might go wrong if we try something new, say, ask for a raise. What we don't often consider is the atrocious cost of the status quo, not changing anything. So you should ask yourself, if I avoid this action or decision, and actions and decisions like it, What might my life look like in, say, six months, 12 months, three years? Any further out, it starts to seem intangible. And really get detailed. Again, emotionally, financially, physically, whatever. And when I did this, it painted a terrifying picture. I was self-medicating. My business was going to implode at any moment, at all times, if I didn't step away. My relationships were fraying or failing. And I realized that inaction was no longer an option for me. Those are the three pages, that's it, that's fear-setting. And after this, I realized that on a scale of one to 10, one being minimal impact, 10 being maximal impact, if I took the trip, I was risking a one to three of temporary and reversible pain for an eight to 10 of positive, life-changing impact. It could be semi-permanent. So I took the trip. None of the disasters came to pass. There were some hiccups, sure. I was able to extricate myself from the business, I ended up extending that trip for a year and a half around the world, and that became the basis for my first book that leads me here today. And 
I can trace all of my biggest wins and all of my biggest disasters averted back to doing fear setting at least once a quarter. It's not a panacea. You'll find that some of your fears are very well founded, but you shouldn't conclude that without first putting them under a microscope. And it doesn't make all the hard times, the hard choices easy, but it can make a lot of them easier. So I encourage you to ask yourselves: Where in your lives right now might defining your fears be more important than defining your goals? Keeping in mind all the while the words of Seneca: We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Big thanks to Tim Ferriss for stopping by and sharing. A different way we can look at setting goals. You can connect with him by visiting his website tim.blog. You can follow him on Instagram at Tim Ferris and check out his podcast, which is entitled The Tim Ferris Show. And if you like today's clip, there will be a link to the entire talk as well as all the links to connect with Tim in the show description, as well as the book that he mentioned in the talk, which is entitled The Four Hour Work Week. And his latest book, entitled "Tribe of Mentors: Short Life Advice from the Best in the World." And lastly, when you get a chance, please follow the show on Spotify Podcast, share it, or subscribe on your favorite podcast player app. All right, that is it for me. I hope you have an amazing weekend, and I'll see you back here Monday, where we'll have a new topic, some great talks. By some amazing speakers. So, until then, stay strong. Later. Later.